Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The most serious charge that we're seeing resulting from this massive investigation that's been ongoing for a year now. I think it's hard to process what's actually happening right now, which is most people are going to get COVID. From the very beginning of the 780 people at Guantanamo, only 16, only 16 of those people have been accused of engaging in or supporting terrorism. This is just demonstrating over and over that in the United States we live in a failed state. We hear a beautiful sound. It is the breaking of chains. We see a path full of hope. We have found the way. Let them go home. Let them go home. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stuart Rhodes, leader of the right-wing extremist group, the Oath Keepers, has been arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy for his actions related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol one year ago. Ten other members of the Oath Keepers also face these most serious charges to date stemming from that day. The indictment handed down by a grand jury on Wednesday and unsealed by the Department of Justice on Thursday states that Rhodes and others conspired to, quote, oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power, end quote. The indictment includes the fact that two days after President Joe Biden won the 2020 election, Rhodes wrote to his members, quote, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your mind body, spirit. A month later, he wrote, quote, it will be a bloody and desperate fight that can't be avoided, end quote. In video from January 6th, members of the Oath Keepers are seen in military formation climbing up the steps into the Capitol, where the indictment says they went in search of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. At the same time, the indictment says there were other members nearby in Virginia with stocked up arms and ammo, ready to act as a so-called quick reaction force. Though Rhodes did not enter the Capitol, he kept in contact with his group inside by cell phone and chat. But of course, he and others who attacked the Capitol were allowed to leave that day. And later that night, the indictment says Rhodes predicted that January 6th was just the beginning. He wrote, quote, you ain't seen nothing yet, end quote. Former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers told CNN Thursday that the charges against Rhodes prove that the investigation into January 6th by the Department of Justice is serious. This indictment charges from November 2020 all the way through January of 2021 
this was sedition. This was not just breaking into the Capitol. This was not just assaulting police officers. This was not even just obstructing a proceeding. This was sedition. This was actually interfering with the lawful transfer of power as set out in the Constitution. And if it's sedition for these guys, you better believe it's also sedition for people who took part in other plots or this plot spread further out to actually stop that transition of power from happening. Rhodes formed the Oath Keepers after the election of the nation's first black president, Barack Obama, and took part in anti-government activities afterward, including the armed standoff against federal agents at an illegal cattle ranch in Nevada in 2014. That same year, the Oath Keepers showed up in Ferguson, Missouri, where they claimed to protect businesses after police murdered Michael Brown. In 2020, they often used violence against protesters during that year's uprising against racism after the police murder of George Floyd. The charge of seditious conspiracy carries a sentence of up to 20 years. While the Department of Justice stepped up this week to defend American people against right-wing attacks, that was not the case in Congress or at the Supreme Court. On Thursday, the nation's highest and increasingly far-right court struck down the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate for large private employers, claiming that the Labor Department and the Occupation Safety and Health Administration do not have the authority to impose the requirement because people contract COVID in many places and not just at work. The court ruled six to three against the mandate, except for healthcare workers. Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Stephen Breyer dissented, writing, quote, after letting Texas's blatantly unconstitutional abortion ban remain in effect, the Republican justices have now swept into action to kneecap the Biden administration's common sense public health measure, end quote. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh said Thursday on NBC that the option to test built into the Biden rule did not force anyone to be vaccinated, but would make workplaces safer as the number of COVID cases spike across the country. People say, you know, how come there's so many jobs open and people aren't going back to work? And one of the reasons, I think, uh, one of the big reasons is people are concerned about going back to work to a non-safe work environment. This was not overly burdensome, number one. And number two, it really was intended to, to make sure that workplaces are safe. Think about that. The irony is that here we are during the week saying we have no right to do it. Meanwhile, there are decisions being made all across America, whether or not do we keep school open next week or do we go remote? What do we do in businesses? You know, I, I just think, again, it's very short-sighted uh, by, by the justices that ruled uh, against this today. According to OSHA, in a period of just six months, the rule would save more than 6,500 worker lives and prevent more than 250,000 hospitalizations. After the court ruling, Biden said that he would continue to work with large employers to develop their own systems for vaccination and testing. More on the U.S. surrender to covid Later in the show with Dr. Margaret Flowers. And voters may also be on our own in coming elections. Even after Joe Biden began the week with a blistering speech in Atlanta in support of voting rights, 
comparing opponents to Confederates and segregationists, Senators Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia still are not moving in their opposition to reforming the Senate filibuster rule in order to pass federal voting rights legislation. Despite this continuing roadblock, members of more than 80 organizations, along with the children of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., are scheduled to march in Washington, D.C. Monday, January 17th, in support of passage of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced on Thursday night that the Senate will take up the voting rights legislation on Tuesday, January 18th. He had planned on taking up the legislation by Monday, January 17th, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, as teachers around the country are on the front lines of COVID and work, Washington substitute teachers are demanding fair pay and improved working conditions. On Monday, January 10th, they held a day of absence from the classroom and rallied outside D.C.'s version of City Hall or our state capitol. Those substitutes are increasingly being called on to replace teachers during the pandemic and most complete the same lesson plans. They are paid less than half of what returning retired teachers are paid as substitutes and that is $120 a day or $150 a day, compared to $300 a day for retirees who also receive a $4,500 signing bonus. Substitute teachers in D.C. are not members of the Washington Teachers Union, but president of that union, Jacqueline Pogue-Lyons, showed up at the rally to show solidarity and spoke to reporters. I would like to see them um, receive more than just $15 an hour, and I would like them to receive professional development support and maybe even some benefits based on how many hours they work a week, because some substitute teachers work just as much as uh, WTU District of Columbia teachers. Also, since the rally, members of the Washington Teachers Union voted to hold a rally over the MLK weekend in support of the substitute teachers. They also urged members to engage in a collective online instruction day in solidarity with COVID-positive colleagues who do not have access to COVID leave and in protest of the failure of D.C. public schools to establish a COVID threshold to move to virtual learning. And finally, I have some exciting news and culture and media this week. The debut novel, None But the Righteous by On the Grounds correspondent Chantel James was released this week to glowing reviews. It was named a Kirkus Most Anticipated Book of the Year and a Goodreads Most Anticipated Debut Novel of 2022. It follows a young man, 19-year-old Ham, set adrift from his hometown of New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Hidden beneath his clothes, he wears his only valued possession, a pendant handed down from his foster mother, Miss Pearl. There's something about the pendant that has always gripped him, and the curiosity of it has grown into a kind of comfort. When Ham finally embarks on a fraught journey back home, he must reclaim his body and mind from a spirit who watches over him, guides him, and seizes possession of him. Kirkus Review said, quote, in the stunning debut, James brings together several beautifully drawn characters, each of whom is working to reconcile the tensions between belonging and exile, freedom and entrapment, 
while also trying to reckon with the ghosts, both literal and figurative, of the past. A mesmerizing story told by an impressive and captivating voice. At her debut book party at Washington, D.C.'s Sankofa Books on Tuesday, January 11th, Chantel read from her novel and was in conversation with the American Book Award winner, Nikki Finney. What's your mom saying about all of this? Oh, my mom is extremely, extremely, extremely excited about all of this. My mom hooked me up with this lovely ring light that I am um, coming to you illuminated by. Go, mom. My mom mom tried to hook me up with a makeup artist that I politely declined for this occasion. (laughs) My mom posted on Facebook pictures that she and my dad had taken with me holding the book. And my mom is a big reason why I'm a writer because she made sure we were in those libraries with our library cards from a very early age. And she always kept books around the house. And I was encouraged to write from a a really young age because I would come to my parents with these little, my, my silly little child scribbles and they would just be like, super excited about it and I think being encouraged in that way from being young young really helped me really helped me on my way and finally Tuesday January 11th also marked 20 years since the United States opened the Guantanamo Detention Center on illegally occupied land on the island of Cuba since its opening 780 men have been detained there all Muslim today 39 of these men remain Most have never been charged with a crime, but most have been tortured. Thirteen have been cleared for transfer, but are still imprisoned at what is known as Gitmo. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is for the dawn, mama took a knock, had to change the locks. Dusted up and brushed off, and I watched talk about a boss. For the holders of a shredder heart, even when you want to fall apart. When you're surrounded by the fog, treading water in an ice cold dark. When they got you feeling like a box, running from another pack of dogs. Put the pistol in the fist up in the air, we are dead, swear to God. Black child in America, the fact that I made this magic. Black and beautiful, the world broke my mama hard, and she died an addict. God bless me to redeem her in my thoughts, words, and my actions. Satisfaction for the devil, goddammit, he'll never ever have it. This is for the do-gooders that the no-gooders use and then abuse. For the truth-tellers tied to the whipping post, left beat battle cruise. For the boys whose body hung from a tree like a piece of strange fruit. Go hard, last word to the fire squad was... Thank you so much for joining us out here today. My name is Herb Garrity and I'm an organizer with Witness Against Torture and the executive director of Rehumanize International. 20 years ago today, on January 11th, 2002, the US government opened the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center for use in the so-called War on Terror. Since then, 780 human beings have been detained there. All of them, Muslim men and boys. Today, 39 of these men remain. 
Most have never been charged with a crime. 13 have been cleared for transfer, but are still imprisoned. Many of the detainees are victims of U.S.-sponsored torture, and all have had their human rights violated within the prison. Guantanamo represents the worst of this country's xenophobia. Its continued existence threatens to render meaningless America's proclaimed commitments to human rights, the rule of law, and basic ideas of fairness. It is long past time to close Guantanamo for good. Today, we have with us members of Witness Against Torture and other allies in this fight for justice. First up, I would like to bring two of the co-founders of Witness Against Torture, Frida and Matt. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you to everybody who organized this day. As Herb said, I was uh, there at the beginning in 2005 when 25 of us violated the Bush administration's restrictions on travel to Cuba uh, to go and visit the men at Guantanamo. And we never could have imagined in 2005, which seems like an age ago, to visit the Muslim men and boys captured there. Never imagined that we'd be standing here today. But we never imagined in 2007, when we first gathered as a witness against torture community, to mark January 11th as a day of national shame, a day of national shame, gathering to resist torture, indefinite detention, scapegoating, Islamophobia, never imagined that we would still be here today, 20 years after the opening of Guantanamo to so-called war on terror combatants. But we're still here because that place of hatred and violence and punishment has survived, has survived two decades, has survived four presidents, and has withstood all of our protests and song and fasting and work, but we're still here. We're still here, uh, still connecting with one another, still resisting with one another, still reaching out to our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Because there are still 39 men at Guantanamo and there are still the scars of torture and abuse on those who have been released. There's still displacement from homeland there's still solitary confinement. There's still torture and abuse going on by the United States throughout the world. So we continue. We continue. We continue learning along the way. We continue learning about the long haul. We continue learning about the power of persistence. We continue learning to be human. So we're still here, and I'm so grateful to be here today with all of you. Thank you. Matt. Thanks, Herb. Thanks, Frida. I'm Matt Delavisio from Witness Against Torture. I just want to share some words from a client that is represented by Reprieve, Ahmed Rabani, who writes to his lawyer, Clive Stafford Smith. I'm stuck in Guantanamo Bay. I've spent 18 years here without a trial. I have never been charged with a crime. And in October 2021, I was even told I could go home, but I'm still here, and I feel like the world has forgotten me. I'm a taxi driver from Karachi. They got the wrong man. I feel like the world has forgotten me. 
That's why we're here. That's why we went to Guantanamo in 2005 when there were over 400 men in Guantanamo. That's why we're still here today, 20 years later, when there are 39 men in Guantanamo, to say that the world has not forgotten them. When we marched to Cuba from Santiago to the gates of Guantanamo prison in 2005, we didn't know the names of the men in the prison. We knew little about them. What we did know was that when we got there in December of 2005, we were closer to those men than any of their family had been at that point in four years. Soon after we got back, Tom Wilner, who is here today, told us that the men inside the prison knew that we were there. We want to lift up the folks who are still there and let them know that they are not forgotten. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. All right, next up, um, as Matt mentioned, um, I would like to bring up Tom Wilner. Tom is one of the many men and women who have been working tirelessly for the rights of the detainees as the Guantanamo lawyers. Well, I have been actually, I've been working since April 2002 to get the prisoners at Guantanamo basic legal rights. And I was at Guantanamo visiting prisoners when you did go to Cuba and they did know about it and they were so touched. They were so touched that Americans were coming down and cared about them other than just the lawyers. Let me say just a few things about Guantanamo so we could make clear of, of the issues because I think they sometimes get confused. There are 39 people at Guantanamo still, or 780 at the beginning. Only 12 of those have been accused of being connected with terrorism. From the very beginning of the 780 people at Guantanamo, only 16, only 16 of those people have been accused of engaging in or supporting terrorism. It's an amazing thing because the world thinks of Guantanamo as a place for terrorists when they hold terrorists. It's not so. The biggest story of Guantanamo has been the other people there who were most accused of participating two decades ago in the act of combat in which against America in um, Afghanistan or the surrounding areas. Most of them denied it, always denied it. We now know that the United States was paying substantial bounties for anyone who was turned in. Any, and almost all Arabs in the area were turned in. Any Arabs who were down there for charitable purposes or anything else, they were turned in. And everyone turned in was sent to Guantanamo. As I say, so of the 780, only 16 were accused of involvement in terrorism. The others were low, supposed to be low-level fighters, most of whom denied it. And I, the, CIA quickly after, the CIA quickly after that confirmed to me that in most, a third of the people they picked up were probably involved in the fight. So these people have sat there, and the ones still there, uh, most denied. Extraordinarily, almost all of them were tortured. It's not just the people accused of terrorism who were tortured. Almost all of them were tortured. I've represented 14. 13 of them are gone. All 14 were tortured, beat up. The worst torture, which they've always told me, is being there without the ability to prove your innocence. And it's an amazing thing. For the last 12 years, we won two Supreme Court cases saying that these people had the right to habeas corpus, the right to go to court, 
to see whether there was a valid basis in fact and in law for their detention. The Court of Appeals here, the D.C. Circuit, said they may have the right to go to court, but in the hearing that they have, they have no right to due process of law. That's an extraordinary thing. What that means is that they can go to court, they can have a hearing, but the government doesn't need to tell them why they're there. So there's nothing they can rebut. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy system. That's what we've had all this time. These people should go home. And all the congressional restrictions on, you know, where they go and everything don't apply if the court enters an order, if they agree to an order saying the war is over. So they can do that. And we should stand up and say, you know, Mr. Biden, I saw a guy over there say, don't pay taxes for Guantanamo. Guantanamo costs us well over $500 million a year, well over that. I was just there. You can't believe all the things they have there, razor wire, troops coming in and out for these 39 people. We could stop it tomorrow. We've got to have the guts to do it. Now, in closure, I would like to hand it over to Art Laughlin, who will lead us in singing some of the songs that Watt has been singing together over the years as we have fought for justice. Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be part of this conspiracy for hope and life and justice. As we remember all the 780 men who have been in Guantanamo for all these 20 years, 39 remaining. Remember, especially the nine who died in Guantanamo, including Adnan Latif, a Yemeni prisoner who was found dead in his cell on September 8, 2012. There's never been an independent investigation into the deaths of the nine men who died in Guantanamo. And so we call Adnan Latif and all those who have died into our circle and presence as we sing together a song that has been very important to many of us as we journey and hope to close Guantanamo. Courage, Muslim brothers, you do not walk alone. We will walk with you and sing your spirit home. Courage, Muslim brothers, you do not walk alone. We will walk with you and sing your spirit home. I added a new verse to this. It goes like this. Courage, Muslim brothers, we seek your liberty. We will stand with you until we all are free. Courage, Muslim brothers, we seek your liberty. We will stand with you until we all are free. We hear a beautiful
sound. It is the breaking of chains. We see a path full of hope. We have found the way. We have found the way. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go. Today we hear a beautiful sound. It is the breaking of chains. We see a path full of hope. We have found the way. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go. Today we hear a beautiful sound. It is the breaking of chains. We see a path full of hope. We have found the way. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go home. Let them go, home. Let them go today. You have been listening to members of the organization Witness Against Torture and others speaking out at the Rally to Close Guantanamo, 20 Years of Detention and Torture, held January 11, 2022, near the White House. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, even before Thursday's Supreme Court ruling striking down Biden's rule for vaccination or testing for large employers, 
The acting FDA commissioner, Janet Woodcock, told a Senate hearing on Tuesday that most people in the United States will get COVID. I think it's hard to process what's actually happening right now, which is most people are going to get COVID. I spoke to pediatrician and veteran healthcare and human rights activist, Dr. Margaret Flowers. She is also editor of the movement organizing website, Popular Resistance, and also hosts the show Clearing the Fog on Pacifica Radio. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you for inviting me, Esther. It's great to be with you. Oh, and I should say Happy New Year. That's right. Happy New Year. So earlier this week, the acting head of the FDA, Dr. Janet Woodcock, was uh, testifying uh, before a Senate hearing, and she said that most people are going to get infected with COVID-19. And she was talking about people in the United States. And that statement really shocked a lot of people. Right now, we're dealing with a upsurge in coronavirus cases here in the U.S., and there's an ongoing tug of war between people who believe in the vaccine and have gotten vaccinated and still a sizable portion of the population who has not gotten vaccinated. And they cite this very same idea. Uh, Some of them do. And so it's frustrating, I guess, to hear uh, in a U.S. official actually say that. So what was your take on hearing this and what's your view on what's happening with COVID right now in the U.S.? Well, you know, she's absolutely correct. The way that the United States is handling this pandemic right now, a lot of people are getting the illness. And there's this whole kind of messaging that's being pushed through the corporate media, telling people that, oh, you know, this is mild. You don't really have to worry about it. You can still go back to school. You can still go back to work. And this is being done because the government at the national level and at the state and local level, is failing to do what's necessary to protect people. This is not acceptable. I mean, we don't know enough about the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus to know what its full effects are and what they will be in the future, not to mention that allowing the virus to proliferate wildly the way it is, is just setting us up for more variants that could be even worse. So this is The problem with the Biden administration that has focused on vaccination from the beginning, instead of focusing on all of the other measures that need to be put in place to stop the spread, like having readily available testing for people, having housing for all people so that they can prevent themselves from getting exposed, having economic support for people. So if they need, if if they have been exposed, they need to quarantine, they can do that. Having a robust public health system that can educate people, you know, make sure that that contacts are alerted that they've been exposed, making sure that workers and everyone really has the protective equipment that they need. All of these things that other countries and less wealthy countries are doing to protect their population, the U.S. is not doing. And so it has taken this tact. The Biden administration has purposefully taken the tact that they are going to risk people's lives because they don't want to, quote unquote, harm the economy. But overall, this approach is going to harm the economy when so many people are sick or can't work. When the Biden administration announced a few weeks ago that they were going to ramp up the amount of tests available and distributed to states and local municipalities, I thought about you and I thought about the conversations we've had about precisely that point. 
that the United States has not, you know, starting with the Trump administration and, and the whole debacle around the testing at the very start of the pandemic here. Um, and so I thought about our conversations. And so we're really, in a sense, right back at the start again, where we are, even though they promised these uh, additional tests, there still aren't enough tests. They're running out where they are uh, available. And so I know you mentioned the Biden administration, but knowing how this hall started, it's almost a continuation of the debacle at the beginning where we did not accept the test from the World Health Organization. Then Jared Kushner totally turned the whole uh, rollout of the supply chain into a money-making scheme and had states competing against each other for basic equipment and ventilators and everything like that. So if you were at the FDA or the CDC and or somehow involved in the health administration at the federal level, what would you say to them what would need to happen right now? Well, I think this points out the fact that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are, you know, they both serve the capitalist class. And so from the beginning, the goal was profits. Why didn't we take the World Health Organization test? It's because U.S. manufacturers wanted to make their own test so they could profit for it. You know, right. so it wasn't about what could be the fastest way to make sure we stop the spread. It was like, oh, look, here's an opportunity. Here's a pandemic. How can we make money off of it? And so, you know, that's what we saw throughout the Trump administration. That's what we've continued to see through the Biden administration. There really has been no tangible difference. In fact, in some ways, you know, we're not getting this, you know, we're getting less support for people and families. You know, there was the whole fight over continuing to delay the student debt repayments. There's the child tax credit that we're losing. So what I would say is, you know, this is just demonstrating over and over that in the United States, we live in a failed state. If we had had a coordinated national response from the beginning, which we could have, we would have been mass producing the tests. We would have been hiring more people to provide support for um, the, not only the public health infrastructure, but making sure that we had people that could have been helping out the students for remote learning so that that wouldn't have been such a debacle. We had all these college students that you know couldn't attend class and uh, they could have been hired to do remote tutoring you know, for students so that our younger students, you know, would have more attention and would not be behind in the way that they are right now. There's just, you know, so much that we could have done if we had thought about this in a way of how do we protect the health of the population rather than how do we profit off of this current situation? Yeah, exactly. And as I listen to mayors of cities, Lightfoot in Chicago, Eric Adams in New York City, basically uh, chiding the teachers and public school teachers. And then also the Biden spokesperson uh, actually just criticizing teachers for being concerned about the safety level in classes and not uh, wanting to go back immediately into the classroom. And I thought about how it was so hypocritical because they know that these same testing measures, uh, safety measures are not put in place. And yet they just want to demonize the teachers as if they're the problem, as opposed to the structures not being in place. Yeah. I mean, I live in Baltimore and we had the same situation here. We knew coming out of the holiday break that in the city, the positivity rate 
of people testing positive for COVID-19 was 33%. That's outrageous. And yet they, the teachers union had to fight to get a few days delay in opening of the school so that they could test the staff and teachers. But then they were planning to bring all the students back in and then test them. That makes no sense when you consider that this virus is airborne and it's transmission and it's considered to be a hyper-infectious strain. This, a lot of epidemiologists are saying we've never seen a virus as contagious as this. So you're going to bring, in my young children's school, the city wanted to bring more than 700 students back into the classroom. Fortunately, you know, I, I refuse to send my young children, even though they're vaccinated. I was not willing to put them at risk or put the teachers and staff at risk. And so fortunately, they did go to remote learning this week, but it's been a fight, you know, and the teachers in Baltimore have had to do a fundraiser even to get the masks that they need to protect themselves. This really makes no sense. Meanwhile, in Baltimore, we just bought three more police helicopters for $18 million. (laughs) It just makes no sense. Wow. Wow. That's a whole other conversation, right? There was a recent hearing about the civilian forfeiture and the police seizing people's money. And then they often use it for just what you're talking about for the, for these war toys that they use, you know, against the population. But another thing that happened recently in terms of the Biden administration is that the CDC had to backtrack and issue all these clarifications because they issued a rule basically saying that if employees had COVID, they reduced the isolation time from 10 days to five days before you would be compelled to go back to work. And then, of course, you know, Delta Airlines took the opportunity to say, okay, well, we're not going to pay for any sick leave after that fifth day. So it was obvious to a lot of people that this was a move, again, for the profits of corporations to protect these businesses who were experiencing these waves of people who were sick. And coming out of that, you even have some healthcare facilities telling nurses to come back or other healthcare uh, personnel to come back, even if they're positive. Right. I mean, when the CDC came out with that five day, you know, if you are positive or you've been exposed, you know, you just quarantine for five days and then you can come back as long as you wear a mask. And we see you know, anybody that goes out in public sees how well the, you know, people wear masks. There's a lot of variation in people's ability to understand how to wear a mask properly. So it is leading to outbreaks at hospitals. Of course, schools have had serious outbreaks. And I, you know, I, I worry about essential workers. I mean, one thing that we should recognize is despite the outrageous numbers of cases, things that we would never dream of, you know, almost 900 million cases or over 900 million cases in one day, But underlying that is the reality that there are a lot of people who can't even get tested. And I know of people who know they've been exposed, they've developed symptoms, but they can't get a test. So they're just assuming that they have it, but they're not being counted in the positive. So we don't even know what the actual numbers of positives are out there. And so sending more people into the workplace who are infectious with a hyper-infectious airborne virus, you know, is, is setting us up for exactly what the FDA you know, spokesperson or person said, everybody's going to get it. If you just allow this spread, it makes zero sense. And I, you know, a lot of experts, it was interesting on Twitter after that CDC recommendation, all of the just outrage at how this is not based on anything scientific. It's purely designed 
to force people back into school and work. And in the end, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt the world because the U.S. could be the incubator for the next variant of this virus. And already this virus is evading our vaccinations. You know, people are continuing to get it despite the fact of being fully vaccinated. It does protect in terms of the severity of the disease, but we still don't know the long-term impacts of that. You know, we know about 20% of people that are infected have impacts on their cognitive abilities. We know that there people are getting long COVID, that children are getting this inflammatory syndrome. So uh, this is not a, you know, a, a benign or mild virus in any way. I'm glad you said that because I just had the same conversation with some colleagues like last week and all of the information that we receive, all the research that we have received, the numbers that we receive, they don't really deal with the fact of long-term impacts. It's almost like they don't really care to know because I remember at the start of this uh, pandemic here in the U.S. when it spread here that when they did autopsies on people, there were different types of findings. Like a lot of people had these serious blood clots in their body. Some people didn't manifest the normal symptoms. Some people just had a heart attack. And it turned out that they, that's how they manifested the COVID. And so I, it just seems to me that no public education, you know, obviously we have no public health system, but we also have no public education system to really let us know what COVID is doing to us. And I just feel that it's just, it's not a priority. Um, The fact that the South African scientists identified Omicron first, the facts showed that they were actually testing a larger degree of their samples than even the United States. So you know, they discovered it. And then African countries were targeted in a certain way, like, oh, you know, you can't travel here, which was really ridiculous because they soon found Omicron cases in other places. It doesn't even mean that it originated in South Africa. And I just, I just don't know if we would even recognize if we had a variant originating here because we're not doing that kind of research. Right, right. And, you know, again, it, it points out to you know, this this whole system in the United States and, and just the prioritization of protecting the capitalist class over people's health. I mean, that's what our healthcare system is, right? It's a, it's a profit-making venture. It really has very little to do with health and it's not organized in that way. If you look at countries like China, they had a very centralized response, coordinated response to the pandemic. They educated the public regularly with updates as this was beginning, as they gained knowledge, they were you know, changing their messaging. Here in the United States, we don't have that education. In fact, it's, it's just confusing. People are completely confused about what's going on. And now the messaging is, we don't actually want you to know how serious this could <laughs> potentially be, because then you might refuse to go to work or you might refuse to go to school as people are doing across the, the country. So the whole... We have the anti-coordinated messages or the coordinated messages for the capitalists, whatever, however you want to describe it. Yeah. The way this is set up so that you can actually feel penalized if you take a test and all of a sudden you're unable to travel, you're unable to go to work. Do you remember when Trump was still in office and he basically said at some point, stop all this testing, you know, if we don't have more tests, we don't have more cases. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That that logic, right. Yeah. Right. And 
you know, it's kind of like just kind of crazy upside down world. Uh, like this movie, like, don't look up, like, don't, don't look at the number of cases. If, if we don't know that you're a case, you're not a case. You're not counting in the numbers, but just cause I know we have to wind up. I was wondering how to relate the FDA commissioner's uh, Woodcox statement in relationship to this other conversation about herd immunity, because it seemed that without saying it outright, that that was Trump's goal that it was Boris Johnson's goal that, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to ride this thing through. We're, we're not going to invest in the people in terms of keeping them safe. We're going to do this strategy of herd immunity. Is it true that by default, the U S is just adopting a herd immunity strategy with so many people dead? Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I'm hearing even from people, you know, on the left, They're saying, oh, you know, we think that Omicron is the new vaccination. It's going to end the pandemic because, you know, it's mild, but it's going to confer immunity. And so it's like we're immunizing everybody. That makes zero sense from a science standpoint. I mean, we already have seen, and this is typical of coronaviruses, that the immunity doesn't last. Once you've had the disease or once you've had the vaccine, it's good for a little while, but it wanes pretty quickly. So this is a really dangerous approach. But yes, I agree with you. The U.S. is basically saying we're going to allow this to run rampant. We don't care how many people are hurt. We don't care how many people die, how many people have long-term impacts. I just saw on Twitter today uh, a woman who committed suicide because she had long COVID and couldn't deal with that, what it's doing to our children, with the risk that it's placing on the whole world as you know, we could possibly be the incubator for the next variant. And who knows where the Omicron variant came from, right? So this is where we are. And it's why we as people need to resist that and say, no, this is not okay. We're not going to go back. We're going to take measures ourselves. And we're going to demand that our government give us healthcare, housing and economic support so we can do the things we need to do to protect our health. Right. And so I know you do a lot of work at Popular Resistance, work work in the community there in Baltimore. What are the things that people can do to keep themselves safe at this time? I know that you believe in the vaccine, that you believe that that is a one tool in the toolbox. But what are some of the other things? Let's let's remind ourselves because the messaging is so confusing and a lot of people kind of feel like, well, you know, we're on our own. So what are the things we need to do? Let's remind ourselves of what we need to do to stay safe, keep our families safe. Right. And we are a fully vaccinated and boosted family here in my home. But right now, with the case numbers they are, we're not going out. We're not going to the store. We're cooking in. I have N95 masks for everyone. If we do go out for a walk or to the playground, which fortunately there's not many people at the playground with the weather it is, so we can get out there and stretch our legs a little bit. You know, we're wearing masks there. We refuse to go to school. And in fact, the teachers and the staff at the school were supportive of that. Many parents were writing in and saying, we don't feel comfortable coming back right now. And and I think that helped to to force the remote learning. I think we need to be reaching out to people in our communities and our neighborhoods, making sure that they're okay, that they're not getting put at risk and finding out what we can do to support each other through this. We're really kind of back at square one where we were in early 2020. And that's what we need to be treating it. And then on top of it, you know, continuing to make that demand that the government at every level needs to be taking action. This is this lack of action this anti-action really is, it's not acceptable. 
Right. So even in something like Build Back Better and those types of measures that are languishing right now that could supply additional assistance to people, like through the continued child tax credit, for example. But one thing that you mentioned that I want to emphasize before we wrap up is that, that, that N95 mask, because I think that a lot of people have bought into protection and we have all kinds of masks on the market. We have a lot of what I call really face coverings. They're not really masks. And, and to really stress, um, if you want to stress to people, the difference between having an N95 mask, what that is, uh, is that the surgical mask that people can buy in a box, uh, what that is and, and how that is providing more protection than some of the even cloth masks that, you know, have become very popular that people are selling and, and making and selling. Right. Uh, thank you. That's a, that's a good point. You know, we're in new territory now. This is not the original virus. This is not the Delta variant. This is Omicron. This is a hyper-infectious. It takes very little exposure. You could, um, you know, be walking by somebody and they cough. And, and if you're not protected or somebody that pulls their mask down to talk and they spread the virus out. So the surgical masks that you buy, those rectangular masks that you buy in the box or the cloth masks will provide some protection but the best protection is what's called an N95 or a KN95. The KN95s are produced in China. The N95s are produced in the U.S., but you can buy them online, buy the bag full. I buy, you know, you can buy 50 bags or 100 bags of them online. And these are ones that are specifically designed uh, to keep, you know, the, the particles out. So the viral particles out. So these are the best ones. They need to be tight fitting. So on children, that may mean that you like for my children, I have to take the elastic bands and tie a knot in them so that they fit on properly. They need to be, you know, you shouldn't have any looseness around it at all. That's the best way to protect yourself. And if you're going outside the house, you need to be wearing one. These masks are a little bit more expensive and these aren't being distributed, you know, by the government. They're not being distributed to us just like tests aren't being distributed to everyone. But anyway, on that note, with that advice, uh, I want to thank uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Margaret Flowers, for joining us and giving us this COVID update, which we want to do regularly. And we'll be sure to reach out again in a few months to see where we are and, and how we can continue to fight back. Great. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Esther. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thank you. And Dr. Margaret Flowers will have the last word on today's show. At our website, onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us, and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at onthegroundshow. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R, underscore Everum. That's I, V like Victor, E-R-E-M. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam, and you can subscribe to that on all your podcast platforms. The podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included A Few Words for the Firing Squad by Run the Jewels, Are You Going With Me by Pat Metheny, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.